Today's scripture reading comes from Esther 4, verses 12 through 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Good morning. So we're going to talk about uh, the book of Esther, as you might have guessed from the scripture reading just now. Um, Esther is a, a big book. There's a lot of narrative in it. I'm going to have to assume that you are roughly familiar with the story, but I'll try to uh, reveal tidbits of it you know, that are important to the, the central plot as we go through along by way of review. Uh, but Esther basically tells the story uh, of a genocidal plot against uh, the Jews who were living in the Persian Empire during the reign of King Ahasuerus several centuries before, uh, before Jesus Christ. And the threat is averted by the courage and cunning of a couple of people, uh, mainly, two, two Jewish people, a man named Mordecai, who was among the Jewish captives carried into uh, exile by uh, the Babylonian Empire, and also Esther. Um, Esther is uh, Mordecai's uh, orphaned cousin, whom he's raising as his own daughter, sort of like a daughter to him. And it's very amazing the way the story turns out. Through a, a series of, for all you can tell in, in the book of Esther, if it weren't in the canon of, of, of the Bible, we, I don't think we'd think otherwise, it looks like a bunch of random events happen um, that remarkably uh, elevate uh, Esther to this position where she's potentially uh, able to... to uh, uh, thwart this plot against her people. She becomes the very uh, queen of the emperor of the Persian Empire. And the story's third main character, uh, the emperor's, emperor's right-hand man, a man by the name of Haman, uh, is the man in whose head this sinister genocidal plot takes shape. Haman had been awarded the position of second only to the king. Um, instead of Mordecai, who earlier in the narrative, um, unbeknownst to the king, had, had foiled a plot against, against the king. But at any rate, Haman is elevated, not Mordecai. And Haman uh, sort of lets this go to his head, and he begins to demand that every other court official, Mordecai included, bow to him, pay homage to him. And he has backing from the king in that request. Well, they all do what they're supposed to, except Mordecai. And he refuses to bow to Haman. And the only clue given us in the text is this little phrase in verse, at the end of verse 4. So let's read Esther 3, this excerpt from the very first part of this chapter. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, uh, the Agagite, the son of uh, Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then in verse 4, when they, that is the other court officials, spoke to him day after day, probably saying, hey, you need to bow down. You need to bow down, dude. What's going on? 
And he wouldn't listen. They told Haman in order to see whether, whether Mordecai's words would stand. And then we have this little somewhat cryptic uh, statement, for he had told them he was a Jew. It doesn't necessarily link that with Mordecai's refusal, but it's sort of, that's the only thing we have to go on that gives us any kind of uh, insight into perhaps why Mordecai refused to bow down. Well, when, when, when Haman learns that Mordecai is a Jew, he uses this to plot this uh, scheme that will bring Mordecai down, he thinks. He'll kill all the Jews in the empire. He'll get the king to sign off on this plan to kill all the Jews in the empire. Mordecai being a Jew would be included. And uh, it's, it's approved. And the date of the widespread annihilation of all the Jews in the, the foremost empire of the day would be decided by casting lots, uh, the word for which is purim. And uh, pure is a lot, purim I think is the plural of lots. Anyway, um, it, it's basically a dice throw. <laughs> you know, your whole fate as a people, your existence will be determined, uh, will, will be ended, and the date will, will be decided by, um, you know, something that looks like a random chance game. Now, one thing that's interesting I want to talk about real quick before we move into the, the body of the lesson. Mordecai is identified as the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. This is from Esther chapter 2. Mordecai is the son of Kish, and he is a Benjaminite, which makes him a likely descendant of King Saul. And if you recall the, the narrative of, of Israelite and Jewish history in the Old Testament, it was King Saul's disobedience that had uh, initiated the downward spiral, uh, moral and ethical spiral of the Israelites, the people of God, the Jews, which eventually ended in their exile in Babylon. And now, since the Persians have succeeded the Babylon, the Babylonians uh, in, in the Medo-Persian Empire as well, that all began with the disobedience of King Saul. And what pagan opponent, do you recall what pagan opponent occasioned the beginning of Saul's disobedience. A guy by the name of Agag, if you remember, of the Amalekites, who, whom Saul refused to spare. And remember, Samuel, the prophet slash judge, has to indict Saul for this. Uh, and this is sort of the beginning of the end. And uh, notice that, uh, that uh, Haman in Esther is identified as an Agagite. So what we have here is a descendant of Saul squaring off against a descendant of, of Agag. Um, Israel versus pagan neighbors, which was always the tension in the Old Testament. So in a sense, Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman because he was a Jew, as it were, may function, it may be functioning here uh, as a way for the book of Esther to sort of register resistance against this dominant pagan narrative. It's a statement of Israel's, um, a statement that Israel's identity will not be just sort of swallowed up, absorbed by this dominant pagan powers narrative. That exile will not mean the end of Jewish identity. I don't want to read too much into that, but I think it's interesting that whoever wrote, wrote or compiled Esther gives us these details about the background of these two main characters in the story. Two of the three main characters. All right, at any rate... I want to suggest to you, I've, talked, I've mentioned the word exile now two or three times, I want to suggest to you that in many ways the book of Esther can be seen as a portrait of what it looks like for God's people to live in exile. And we'll talk more about what that means in a few minutes. But I think the, the book in, invites us to think about it in terms of exile. The text itself stresses that Mordecai was carried away. In, in fact, three times in one verse, in Esther chapter 2, let's read verses 5 through 7, you'll see this. 
Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away. There's one from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, number two, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Do you think Mordecai was carried away? Was he deported? Was he exiled from his homeland? Yeah, three times we're told that. And this is kind of in the setting of the book. So this is a story about the Jews in exile. And they're in danger of losing their identity. Perhaps their existence, if the book of Esther story was to, to, to follow through. And in fact, Esther, uh, the word itself, the name of the woman, uh, is, is not her original name. This is a Persian pagan given name. Her, her given name from her Hebrew parents was Hadassah. So she's got a double identity herself, kind of a microcosm of the problem the Jews are facing. And more than that, she's identified as an orphan. She's being raised by Mordecai, but verse 7 says she had neither father nor mother. She has no parents. And in many ways, um, that epitomizes probably the feeling that most of the Jews had. It's sort of a parentless time, if you will. Their heavenly father isn't as everywhere as he once seemed his homeland his temple all of that is gone they're in the land that is run by foreign gods and no doubt many of them felt or at least wondered about their heavenly father's presence and control over world events even mordecai's name scholars say is likely or at least very possibly uh, a name given in homage to marduk you can kind of see those uh, consonants there the M, the R, and the D sound. Marduk, who was one of the leading gods of the Babylonian Empire in that part of the world. So this is much, uh, very much a story about uh, God's people living in, in exile. And, you know, there's a sense in which God's people have always been in exile. Um, <clears throat> in our culture war uh, sort of uh, bathed time, we have this idea. It's very common among religious people, and I appreciate the sentiment. But there's this assumption that there was a day back somewhere in our history as Americans when everybody was a Bible-believing Christian. And we just got to get the culture back. From a historian standpoint, that's an absolute myth. That just never was the case. Um, some of the most religious periods in American history were after the founding period. You know, the, the sort of first-string founding fathers were mostly deists. Um, Thomas Jefferson, if you've ever seen what he did with his Bible... Uh, just played fast and loose with it, took a pen knife and decided what was true and what wasn't. I mean, this is, you know, Ben Franklin was a, a, a deist. Uh, George Washington was a, a, a fair-weather uh, Episcopalian. I mean, you can go on and on and on. But Christians have never had the culture. When, name a time in the Bible when the people of God were not surrounded by an enormous pagan power. Egypt. Right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the whole life and career of Jesus and Paul happened within the Roman Empire. Pagan power that looks insurmountable. It looks as though their gods are running the world and the people of God have got to find a way to maintain their identity and their faithfulness and their ministry to a larger, seemingly in control, pagan power. That's Bible 101. So sometimes I think we should lose some of that angst and, and get to work serving and loving instead of following along with the sort of hating and venom throwing because we're supposed to be ministers 
to a sick culture, as God's people have always been. So there's a lot of lessons here in Esther um, about what it looks like to live in exile. Christians are called exiles, by the way, by 1 Peter. We're called sojourners and exiles in 1 Peter 2.11. And, and we're trying, as they were in ancient times, to keep hope and faith alive in a world that doesn't know our God necessarily. So I think we do well to learn a little bit from Esther. I want to suggest three basic lessons this morning from this book. First of which is small actions can have big outcomes. Small actions can have really huge results. Now, as we've said, Esther gets elevated to position of queen, right? I'm going to talk more about how she gets uh, elevated to position of queen in a few minutes. But at, when she's in this position of, of, of queen to, uh, to the king of the, of the whole uh, Persian empire, messengers get sent back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai is trying to influence her. He can't come in there, but he's out at the gate of the king's area. And he's sending these messengers back and forth, trying to get her to use her proximity to the king to intercede on behalf of the people, to speak up so that they're not all annihilated according to Haman's murderous plot. And, and you may recall Esther's retort. There is this law that cannot be changed. I love that thing, too. It's in Daniel and Esther, the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed, right? It's just, it's like a law, it's like gravity. It cannot be changed. I remember hearing that as a kid and going, well, just change it. You're, you're a dictator. You made it up, but that's what they think. I don't know what's behind that. But anyway, um, Esther 4.11. All the king's servants, Mordecai says to her through a messenger. He says, Esther, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know. Oh, no, I'm sorry, this is her retorting back. I don't want to go in because everybody knows that if a man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, if he doesn't summon you and you just walk in, there is but one law. It's a law of the land. And it's to be put to death unless the king happens to hold out his golden scepter. And you can live. So you don't know going in whether he's going to do that or not. It's, a, it's kind of an all or nothing risk. And then she adds, as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for 30 days. So it's not like we're like really on right now. Right? I'm not feeling like a vibe from the king. Um, and so I just walk in. I could die. And then his response is the classic, you know, kind of, I think, central text of the whole book. When Esther 4, verses 12 through 14, at least the pivot point of the book, he says, tells the messengers to reply to Esther, verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, if this goes through, we're all going to be slaughtered. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And then he asks her, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he's asking her to speak up. He's asking her to do something. And she does speak up. And then through this mixture of scheming and ostensibly random events involving feasts and royal insomnia and late night reading of the court chronicles and uh, the king misinterpreting sort of an intention of Haman at one point when he's on the couch with Esther begging that she change her mind and all this stuff. Through all of that mixture of events, the Jews are saved from genocide and Mordecai is honored. And there are huge long-term implications of these relatively small acts. She talks. Mordecai insists that she talk, and she finally does talk. In the scheme of things, those don't seem like very big things. 
They're addressing the, the world's greatest empire of the day with all of that wealth and military power and control. And we're just talking about a couple of people who are willing to say something. Small actions, but how large are the long-term implications? What happens is the Jews, the Jews are saved. But think about in the biblical narrative, the overarching, you know, 30,000 foot view of the biblical narrative, what it means to save the Jews. To save the Jews is nothing less than to save the people through whom Yahweh, the God of the Bible, will save the entire world. That's what that means. There's no salvation outside of the Jews in the Bible. Because the story starts with the Jews. God comes to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, slash Hebrews, slash Israelites, same people, and says, through your descendant, one day all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that descendant is Jesus, who is a Jewish Messiah. So much so that when the woman at the well in Samaria in the Gospel of John has this conversation with Jesus, she's wanting to know which mountain do we worship it on? Is it Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans talk about, or is it Mount Zion, where the Jews uh, focus on? And he says, basically, it's neither going to be one of those mountains, but for the record, salvation's from the Jews. We're moving into its spirit and the truth, but it comes out of the Jewish story. Christianity is the completion of that story for Christians. And Paul uses the, the, the famous metaphor of an olive tree in Romans, Romans 11, where he talks about uh, the natural branches, the ones that were just there from the beginning, indigenously, so to speak, were Jewish. And then the wild branches get grafted onto this olive tree, and then they represent the Gentiles. But it's a Jewish tree. So salvation's from the Jews. So when the Jews are saved, what else is saved? Everything. Everything. He's saving the pl they're saving the plan of God, in a sense. I don't know that they know all that or thinking all that. And that's my point. A small action, a small word, a small deed can have enormous impact. And I want you to think about this for a minute. The potential impact of our actions and our words. Sometimes we feel like we're caught up in a flow of events that is just huge and complicated and random. What difference could anything I do or say possibly make? We're just cogs in a giant machine. You ever feel that way? You're like, ah, I should, but, ah, you know, what? It's not. I want to tell you a little story about a guy named Francis Collins. I mentioned him before, but you've forgotten. <laughs> Let's be real. Um, Francis Collins is, is, a, is a, a person that I don't, I've never met him, but I, I'm just so impressed and thankful to God for what he's done. He's arguably, I'd say, one of the top, he'd have to be, by about any definition, one of the top public scientists in the world. He's the head of the National Institutes of Health. That, that alone puts you in the, in the conversation. But he also headed up the Human Genome Project, which in, I think, 2003 or 4, finished you know, mapping out uh, the, the, the instruction book that makes us us, you know, that assimilates all the proteins and organizes them and generates them. It, it's the, the, the blueprint, right? They, they broke that code after years of work, and he headed that project. Well, Francis Collins was an atheist who turned into not only a believer, but an apologist, a defender, an active defender of Christianity. Um, he wrote a book called The Language of God that I read about 10 years ago, which basically talks about how DNA, uh, he sees as a divine language that is an evidence for the existence of God. 
he founded a website called biologos.org, which I think a whole lot of, which tries to show that mainstream science and the Bible are not in contradiction with each other. There's questions you have to work through. There's difficulty. That's the case with anything. But, but you, can, you can be a believer, a robust, small, o, orthodox believer in Scripture, and you don't have to check your brain at the door. That's what that's doing for lots of people. Um, but the whole turn in, in, in Collins's life from atheist to Christian began with two apparently inconsequential exchanges. And I want to tell you just a little bit about those and we'll move on. I'll try not to take too much time on this, cool as it is. So he, he was a, he's, not, he's not a dumb guy, you might imagine that. So he, he earned a PhD in physical chemistry from Yale. Grew up in, in, in Virginia, went to UVA, he, he, and then he went to, to grad school at Yale and got a, a PhD in physical chemistry. And then his interest started, his curiosity started changing a bit. He got a little bit more into the life sciences. So he applied later in life uh, to UNC Medical School, got accepted, and became a medical doctor at UNC Chapel Hill. And while doctoring in, in, in part of the UNC hospital system one day, um, he, he met this elderly woman who was very sick and got to know her because he attended her uh, uh, bedside very often for uh, weeks. And uh, she had acute cardiac disease, this crushing chest pain, and none, none of the available medicines were giving her any relief. So she's just having to deal with that. She knew her life would not last much longer. But he noticed she was very positive. This is just a grand, he described her as a grandmotherly woman from North Carolina. And just really positive and was always talking about how much Jesus was with her and she didn't have anything to worry about and everything was good. And he said he would listen to her kind of awkwardly, you know, as this atheist. And then one day she turns to him and says, Doctor, I've told you about my faith. What do you believe? And he said, he stammered something like, I don't really know. And... She asked it in such a touching, sincere way, in just an honest way, like, surely you believe something. And he said he was haunted by that question for days and weeks and months and thought it was really ironic that he was this scientist who was supposed to have all these answers for all the big questions, and he had no clue about that question. And he thought, that's, maybe that's something I ought to know something about. So he begins kind of deciding to, to go on a quest, to look into that a little more systematically. He's still fairly confident that he ended up confirming you know, his own atheism. So that's, that's in, uh, interaction number one. So in an effort to uh, find out why believers believe, because he knew some colleagues at UNC, doctors who were, who were believers, a handful, and they didn't seem like dumb people, he decided to, he, just, he lived in, in, in uh, uh, Carborough on Old Hillsborough Road, he said, and he just walks down the street to this church, to, the, to a parsonage next to a church, and knocks on the minister's door, just randomly. Guy opens the door, and he asks if he could get some help with a question he's been investigating. This is probably a very strange conversation. And they ended up having like an hour-long conversation, the gist of which was, Collins asking the preacher how a rational person could sign up for some of these beliefs without checking the brain at the door. And the preacher assured him that he, that he was hardly the first person to ask a question like this and that he, that he didn't need to feel bad about it. That was great. He had many conversations like this. And he, he turned to his bookshelf and he challenged Collins to read a book that he handed him. 
A book written by somebody who'd asked the same questions that Collins was asking, and a person who had traveled the same path from unbelief to belief himself. And that book was called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And Collins credits the, the conversation with the grandmotherly woman in the hospital bed, this interaction with this random preacher, and double helix DNA with his conversion. What if those two people had said, you know what, that's not going to go anywhere. This guy has influenced my life like I can't tell you. Uh, and I, don't, I can't tell you how many people. We've had people come to this church because of things they read on Biologos from NC State. A kid one time, I won't go into all that. Anyway, um, that's the, the first point. The second point is good can come out of evil. Good can come out of evil. I need to hustle. To appreciate the magnitude of this evil, I, I, I want us to first of all uh, remember, and, and maybe this is new to you if you don't know the book of Esther, but I want us to appreciate how Esther gets into the position of queen. The backstory is this humiliating demand made of the previous queen, a woman by the name of Vashti. And in Esther 1, 10 through 12, I'm just going to skip over this. Basically, the king is merry with wine. He's at this big feast. He wants to show off his beautiful queen. So he says, I want you to come out here and just walk around so we can look at you. Hashtag me too. I mean, goodness gracious, this is disturbing. And, oh, you can bring your, your crown. So just come on out. She, she, doesn't, she says no. He's enraged. I'm sure his, his fragile male ego is damaged. His anger burns within him, and so she's sort of on the outs. And the process to select the replacement, kind of like a beauty pageant. I've heard people call it that in literature before. It's a bit more indecent than a beauty pageant. I'm not a giant fan of beauty pageants anyway, personally, for the record. Maybe you are into them. I don't, it's fine. But this is, that's, that's generous to call what happens next a beauty pageant. We have to read this so you can get some of the, the yuck of it. Then the king's young men, this is Esther chapter 2, random excerpts from Esther 2. The king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Plural. He's got a wife already. So that's, that's one thing. Beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. I hope you're, you're being creeped out a bit. You should be. This is not a story. I don't know. How, I've read people before tried to make this Esther Ahasuerus story a kind of a love story. No, that's not what this is. <laughs> Unless I am big time misreading this. All right. They don't have a big choice here. Most of them. Um, let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom. Gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem. Do we need to define that? And let the young wo woman who pleases the the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther, he's one of the eunuchs in the, in the charge of the king, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. There's no reason given. A little bit earlier, it says that she was very beautiful and had a beautiful figure. That's it. That's the only possible dot connecting you can get here. We don't, it doesn't sound like she's complicit. She's just gathered. I don't know if she were or, 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 or was not. I, I don't know. It doesn't say she was. It just, she's beautiful. She's gathered up with all the others from around the kingdom. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, 
Verse 14, in the evening, the woman would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So basically, each woman in, in a series is, spends the night with the king. Then you're sent off to some other holding pen where maybe your beauty is maintained. But you don't get called back unless he would delighted in you. This is all kind of messed up, right? This should be highly disturbing. This is, I can list about five sins that the scriptures would condemn um, without even thinking too hard. I don't think you can overstate how disturbing this is. The, think of the abuse. This, this has got emotional abuse, no doubt. These young women taken from their homes, psychological abuse, sexual abuse. And talk about objectification of women. That's all this is, apparently. They're selected based on their physical beauty. And yet, this horrific chain of events ultimately sets up conditions for the salvation of the people of God. Esther is a Jewish woman. She becomes queen and gain, gains the king's ear. And now she's able to arrange things such that Haman's plot against the Jews gets exposed and ultimately overthrown. Now, I want to be, sure, be, be clear here. Scripture, uniformly, it always counsels against sin. It doesn't brook any quarter with sin. It never condones sinning that grace may abound or anything like that. But the same scripture also shows us repeatedly throughout its pages that God can use even the evil choices of sinners to bring about good. That doesn't mean we should go sin and rely on that because we don't know when he's going to do it when he's not. But even the effects of our sins cannot thwart the plan of God's loving gospel. Think of all the examples of this. Think of Joseph, who's been mistreated, you know, lied to. His dad's been lied to. They've left him for dead. He's been sold into slavery. He's, he's been falsely accused, almost loses his life. Here's Joseph now through this strange set of events, elevated to second in the command of a previous empire in Egypt. And when his brothers, because of the famine in their homeland, are brought to his knees, they're scared to death. They ought to be. Remember what he says? Don't worry about it. He says, for you, you meant evil against me. They did, they did evil. They were evil against him. But God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive. And the Egyptian bounty of grain is able to feed the, 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 the budding Israelite nation in embryo form and keep it alive. Bathsheba. David's ill-gotten wife. Adultery, murder, dishonesty, drunkenness. Again, you can list out a lot of sins. And yet, when you open up the pages of Matthew 1, the first page in our New Testaments, who is listed there in the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, but she who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul says, I was an awful sinner and that was wrong. Full stop. Yet God showed me mercy so that anybody, any sinner, however low you have sunk, there's still hope. 
If he can save somebody who was murdering Christians, like the Apostle Paul was formerly, then he can save you. Now, as we angle into our last point, you may have noticed that I really haven't talked that much about God, other than this very last point that I just made about God's ability to use even evil to, to bring about good. I've barely mentioned God, if at all, in this sermon up to this point. I don't know if you noticed that or didn't notice that. That was actually not accidental on my part. I've tried to kind of keep the, theme, the, the, the tenor uh, of the tone of Esther intact, kind of honor that. And, and Esther is a book that God doesn't really have a big role in on the surface. And so our last point is God may seem absent. He may seem to you and me like he's absent in our lives. Absent in our country, absent in our world, absent in your crisis and your anxiety, your worries, your relationship problems, your job problems, your money problems. Where is God? He may seem absent, but God is actually always present, always presiding over this world, which is his world after all. Now, that's a, that's a point that I think grows straight out of the text of Esther. You probably know this, and if you, if you don't, this will be new information, and that, that, that's good. If you do, this will just be a reminder. But the word God does not appear in the book of Esther one time. Not once. God never comes to anybody in a dream in the book of Esther. Very unlike many of the other Old Testament books, right? There's no prophet of God who appears with a divine oracle that says this is what you should do. None of that in the book of Esther, not a bit. It's the only canonical book in the Bible in which the word God is never mentioned a single time. Think about that for a minute. That's not just, eh, that's weird, right? A lot of ancient people thought it was weird. Uh, there are, and, and so that, I'm talking about the Protestant canon, canon right now. In uh, some, some older uh, Greek versions, Greek translations of the scripture, there are six what are called additions to Esther, little texts that are in some of these Greek versions that aren't in the canonical version of Esther that we recognize. And these do have the word God in them. God's doing things. There are dreams. It's very apocalyptic. It's a lot like Daniel, the book of Daniel. So God's all over it. Um, why is that the case? Well, one possible reason, this is what I lean toward, is that somebody way back when was trying to pretty things up a little bit in Esther. It just wouldn't do that God wasn't mentioned in there. And it has this feel of randomness and human agency. And where it, he's not even mentioned, literally not in the pages. So somebody was trying to fix things, you might say, or help the Bible out a little bit. Don't we try to sometimes help God out a little bit? And here's the point I want to leave with you this morning. Maybe we're not supposed to help the book out. Esther gives us a true-to-life picture of where we often find ourselves as God's people living in exile. When the vast majority of people in your world don't honor your God, don't believe in your God, don't seem to follow your... Even the ones who claim to follow Him don't act like He says to act half the time. And we don't act like we're supposed to act half the time. How do you live? Well, Esther is a true-to-life picture of some of those things. It resonates with our actual on-the-ground experience. And I'll tell you something that's really interesting here. You know, we have our Old Testaments in our order. If you were to take a Hebrew Bible, 
So our Old Testaments, but in their ordering, what they call the Tanakh, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, as they're referred to in the Gospels, they have basically the same material, but they're ordered radically different, right? You ever seen a Hebrew Bible? It's not the same order at all. In our Bibles, Esther and Daniel are pretty far apart. In the Hebrew Bible, Esther and Daniel are right next to each other. Think about the difference in tone and the role of God in Daniel versus the book of Esther. Unlike Esther, Daniel's full of dreams. Full of dreams. Somebody's always dreaming for God and interpreting for God. And God's coming to people. And God's speaking to people. And there are visions from God. And there are these explicit statements in the book of Daniel that God's in control. Statements like Daniel 4.25. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. That's all through Daniel. You couldn't have a greater contrast between Daniel and Esther, which literally abut one another in the Hebrew Bible in terms of God's role. And at times, folks, our experience is like a book of Daniel experience, isn't it? God's presence is palpable. It gives you chills. Sometimes when we're singing in here, I feel that way. His, your, 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 your confidence that God's in control is, is just evident. It's going to be all right. God's got it. God's in control. You have experiences like that? That's a book of Daniel type experience. And then sometimes our experience is more like a book of Esther experience. It's not so obvious to us, if we're honest, that God has any real relevance right now. Because I don't see how this is going to work out. I'm trying. I'm doing things His way. Where is God? You feel like the psalmist in a lament psalm. His control is not as evident. What seems more obvious and palpable is the power of evil. The power of chance and randomness. And in Esther, these evil Persian empire officials appear so all-powerful, don't they? Their every whim can be obeyed. They can wipe out an entire race of people and take all their possessions with a word. Read with me in Esther 3. 12 through 15. An edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. We're going to make sure everybody everywhere gets this. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Wipe them out and bring me my wine. Boy, that looks like close to all-powerful. Say the word, and a race is wiped out. And our fate can seem like it's out of our hands. Like it's being decided by powers beyond our control or by utter chance. Theirs was being decided by lots, by Purim. Maybe they thought these were evidence of what the gods were choosing. But either way, it wasn't a hopeful situation. In the first month, Esther 3.7, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, 
before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, which we've just read. Their fate will be decided by this lot casting business. And I think sometimes that's how we feel. I have a quote I want to share with you, then we'll wrap up. From a commentary on Esther and Daniel, a man named Samuel Wells writes, One would like there always to be an intimacy between God and the church. We'd like that. That's what we'd like, if we could just script it. We'd like there to be a settled trajectory for the church to perceive its role in God's story from the coming of the Spirit on the disciples to the coming down of the New Jerusalem dressed as a bride. From the beginning to the end, we'd like there to be a clear script for the church to follow and clear intimacy between God and His people. And then he writes, but it isn't always like that. Esther, the book of Esther says, it never was always like that. But do not despair. Make provision. Develop habits. Keep united. And salvation will come. There's a reason, folks, that we shouldn't despair. And that reason isn't written in the words, in the lines of the book of Esther, but it is between those lines all throughout. And that is that there is a power above the powers that be. All the Persian schemes backfire. The victims are delivered. The oppressors are destroyed. Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. Mordecai is, is elevated to Haman's position of second in power. And Purim becomes the name of an annual Jewish feast. A timeless testament, not to the Jews' destruction, but to their salvation. One more reading, Esther 9, beginning in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them, from, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Verse 24, for Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when, it came, but, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term pur. There's a reversal in the meaning of this word, in the symbolic meaning that reminds me of what happens with the cross. Before Jesus, the cross, this ubiquitous form of, of execution, signified humiliation and defeat of the one being crucified. And so it seemed that fateful Friday as Christ hung there on His cross, and as that mid-afternoon darkness descended, all hope seemed lost. The king of the Jews, remember they had that on his a plaque above his head, the king of the Jews, he had been nailed to a Roman cross. And so it seemed had the hopes of all of his followers. But the Sunday morning that followed that Friday changed everything. The resurrection of Christ inverts the meaning of the cross. And God now has triumphed over the powers. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 2. At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. 
in Jesus. At Calvary, the meaning of the cross, the symbol of pagan imperial power, is changed into a symbol of salvation for the weak, for the oppressed, for the sin-sick, for any who would trust that this King of the Jews is actually the King of Kings, the Creator and Redeemer of the world He still runs. Thank you for your attention today. We've got 10 minutes to play with. How about that? You have no idea how many hours I spent cutting things. It's hard to do the book of Esther in one time and have it make any sense and, you know, be like, eh. Maybe it's still eh. I don't know. But we're out, we're out early for me. Thank you for being here, especially our visitors. We really appreciate you coming today. Uh, if we can help anybody in any way in terms of their relationship with God, we're just people seeking God ourselves, but we'd love to try to help any way we can. So maybe you need prayers or would like to set up a Bible study. We have a baptistry if anyone is re ready to be baptized into Christ to begin their walk with Jesus, to become saved from their sins. Uh, however we can help you, let us know. We're all going to stand and sing, and, and you can come to the center circle here and let us know your needs. Let's all stand. Corey will lead us. <clears throat>